And I apologize for cutting your time short. I know Warren told you y'all had 10 to 15 minutes of a break. So, so sorry for cutting your time short. When, when Warren leaves the church, y'all can have more breaks. <laughs> 10 to 15 minutes. I was like, man. All right, ushers, if anyone's in the hallway, please tell them to come in. If anyone's in the kitchen, tell them there's no cooking during service. If you have a cell phone, put it on vibrator off, especially if you have a ringtone that you do not want us to hear. Sanctification works in all facets. It's everything. Open your Bibles to Romans 8. We're going to continue in our series in Romans. It has been a privilege to be in the book of Romans. I'm glad to be back here. We're going to look at uh, three verses today, but we're going to read the three verses that we talked about last week in context. Because we're looking at verses 15 through 17. Last, last Sunday, we looked at verses 12 through 14, and I mentioned that I'm not stopping at 14 because that's the logical place. That's the logical break. Typically, when you are looking at passages to preach, you're trying to at least stop where you think the idea, it captures all of the idea, but this is really a, a, a unit that functions better together, but I wanted to pause because I felt like what needed to be said last week was said and that this week needed to be said separately. Otherwise, it would have been a lot to try to try to cover because Romans, as many people know, I've said Romans 8 is their favorite chapter for a number of reasons. There's a lot of encouragement in Romans chapter 8. And whether you live, you're a Christian in America or you're in a third world country, if you profess to believe in Jesus Christ, as Peter has said, that the brothers and sisters suffer the same things. So we may not be experiencing the same persecution that our brothers and sisters in, say, a Muslim country might be experiencing. But there is a degree in which if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you deal with the reality and the tension that honoring the Lord often means dishonoring your culture. It may mean dishonoring your own desires and temptations. It may be meaning to die, as we looked at last week, to die to the deeds of the body, habits and patterns that we've all created, that we've gotten familiar with and somewhat comfortable with, as one theologian calls respectable sins. A commitment to Jesus Christ, it requires a supernatural work so that those who believe in them strive to live differently. And that is not, there's no region of the world where that's different. The circumstances of what would provoke us and make it difficult to obey God may be different. Our country may not be in some places yet, but it's headed in that direction for those of us that are genuine believers in the Lord. But there is a sense where it's hard to believe in Jesus and live for Jesus because some of the things that we have to believe about the Bible, we don't experience, we don't feel. And that creates a dynamic. It creates a significant dynamic. Well, today is going to be one of those where the passage that we're going to look at specifically says something about those who believe in Jesus that it's hard to process 
especially in moments of suffering or struggle, it's hard to connect with. But God doesn't tell us things that are true when we believe them or feel them. They're true because he said them. And that's sort of the rub of what it means sometimes to be a believer. Well, today will be no different. Last week, we looked at verses 12 through 14 in Romans 8. We're going to look at 15 through 17 today. But for the sake of context, we're going to read last week's passage as well, 12 through 17, beginning in Romans 8. I'm reading from the CSB version, and I quote. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. And this begins our passage today. Verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. End quote. Let's pray. Father, this morning I have been given the responsibility by you to communicate truths from this passage of Scripture that's your precious word that you established, that you had written, that you inspired Paul to write, not just for the church in Rome specifically, but for believers throughout the generations and throughout the different regions of the world. There may be millions of sermons right now preaching these verses because it's your word. Father, I pray that as as it is common in Scripture for those who were even among you to at times doubt, not understand or not see things clearly, I pray that this morning you would give us more clarity than we had, or you would further the clarity that you've already given us. For your word always places a claim on those who profess to believe in you, and this room is filled with many who were in that place. Father, I pray that you would give me an ability to speak with clarity so that things make sense. And I pray that where where I'm not clear, where I'm speaking that's not from you, I pray that you would remove that from the minds of those who belong to you in this room. For I don't want to preach an error. But the things that are said this morning, where they be true, Father, I pray that you would burn it in our hearts and that we would find much encouragement and much direction, that we would find deeper hope and more faith. Because these are your words. These are not my words. Even though I will use my own words to communicate, but these are your words. You put this in your particular word for your particular believers to read at their particular moments in time. And this morning is such a time. So I pray that you would 
You've given me this responsibility. Please help me with this opportunity. And may they hear a better message than I'm able to preach. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. This, this, our passage this morning really connects back to the idea of being obligated by the flesh that we looked at last week. It's really not different. And we talked about being obligated by the flesh, to the flesh. The language that Paul uses is not typically how we talk in this day and age. We don't say, I'm obligated to the flesh today. That's just not how we talk. So sometimes it's like, well, what is he talking about? It's like, it's like if you're not into old English and you watch shows and they talk, well, they talk in old English, I don't always understand it. Or I can, but it's just like, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, sometimes reading the Bible doesn't make sense because I don't use this type of language. So when he talks about being obligated to the flesh, or your translation may say debtors, it just simply means that we have to. We give in to the temptations of sin when we experience them. And he's saying here, he says that we're not obligated to do so, meaning we, we no longer have to submit to the temptations that we experience. We don't owe them anything. Now, we talked about ways that we are obligated to the flesh, and some of those ways are our personalities. You know, our personalities sometimes obligate us to the flesh. And by that, I mean our personalities dictate how we live and respond more than God's word at times. Sometimes God wants us to be, you know, we're introverted and we need to learn how to communicate and take an interest in others. But we don't say anything because I just, I'm, I'm just, I like to be quiet and just listen. Sometimes we're extroverted and we want to go around and talk to everyone. And sometimes the Lord might be like, you should probably hush up and listen a little bit. Which one do you think I am? <laughs> Our personalities obligate us to the flesh. We feel like this is just who I am. You ever heard somebody say, well, I, I just tell it like it is. What fruit of the spirit is that? <laughs> you know, could be faithfulness. Could be arrogance, you know. Our personalities sometimes, we, we feel like we're, we need to, our personalities need to be a part of who we are. And if we're not that way, then sometimes our personalities keep us obligated to the flesh. We respond in ways that are fleshly, that are sinful than the fruits of the Spirit. Another thing that keeps us obligated to the flesh is the power of temptation. Temptation at times is powerful, and especially if you've been struggling with certain thoughts or feelings for over a period of time. It just feels like, you know what, then, you know, the, the, the temptation, you know the funny thing about temptation? It, it discourages us. I know believers, and I used to be like this a lot, get dis- to, to some degree to this day I can be like this, I get discouraged by the fact that I'm tempted. And sometimes I just don't feel like fighting temptation. You ever just avoid a situation because you don't even feel like, you don't feel like, I don't feel like being, fighting, being bitter or angry, so I'm just going to avoid this situation or avoid these people. I'm going to avoid this context. There can be wisdom in that, but sometimes this is not. Temptation is powerful. But one of the ways that we're obligated to the flesh and temptation is that we're deceived to think that we can control certain aspects of it. Right? No one ever thinks this is going to end up badly. No one, no one ever thinks that getting high one time is going to turn into an addiction. No one ever thinks 
that looking at an online pornography video is going to turn into I can't resist it anymore. No one ever thinks that being angry and struggling with anger is going to turn into fits of rage. No one thinks that way. No one thinks that craving people's approval is going to turn into a pattern of lying because you want people to think a certain way about you. No one thinks like that. One of the powers of temptation is that we think we can control it a little bit. That's why each of us have our own little sins that we are with that sometimes are a part of our personalities. Or if you're someone like me, it's a part of my history. Where I came from shapes who I am today. So, you know, I'm from the street. So if somebody, there's no fruit of the spirit there. It's obligated to the flesh. Another thing that keeps us obligated to the flesh is the past pleasure of sin. More pastors need to be honest. More Christians need to be honest and say the reason why sin is so drawing is because we benefit from it. There's pleasure in it. There's pleasure in getting drunk or high. There's pleasure in it. There's pleasure in sexual release. There's pleasure in lying to someone to get out of a situation. There's pleasure in talking behind people's back. There's pleasure in complaining. Oh, my life. There's pleasure in these things. No one is crying while they're gossiping about people. I don't want to talk behind their back, but I have to. (laughs) You just don't do that. You be in church like, hey, how you doing? I can't stand them. (laughs) Right? No one is like, I don't want to go to this website. It doesn't happen. Scripture in Hebrews 11 said that Moses was willing to stay, go with the Israelites to resist the fleeting pleasures of sin. That language is in every credible translation. Scripture acknowledges that sin has pleasure in it. And a lot of times what God is saying is sacrifice that immediate pleasure for an eternal one that we don't always experience. But that pleasure leaves us obligated to the flesh. Another reality is the lack of confidence in the spirit or the weapons that God has given us. Leaves us obligated to the flesh. Many of us just do not see our Bibles as real viable weapons. We've looked at twice the scene in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 where Jesus led by the spirit into the wilderness. Here's Jesus, the son of God, filled with the spirit, 40 days not eating, And when he gets tempted by the devil, instead of doing something that we're going to see next Friday in Rise of the Skywalker, he didn't use the force to knock back Satan, right? What did he do? What was the supernatural way that God, that Jesus resisted sin? He quoted the Bible. That was the supernatural, spirit-filled way to resist temptation. That man does not eat on bread alone. Go to Deuteronomy 6 twice, Deuteronomy 8, but we don't often think the weapons that we have. And I think it's because the presence of temptation. You know, it needs to be, I think someone should do a study. I would love for Barner or one of these groups to do a study on Christians and temptation. And I'm not talking about sin, I'm talking about temptation. And how many of us are overwhelmed and discouraged by the fact that we're tempted? 
Temptation has nothing to do with maturity. It has nothing to do with how godly you are. The less tempted you are, the more, the more that means you're mature. Now, actually, it's the opposite. The less tempted you are means the spirit isn't keying you off. The less tempted you are typically means you give it in the sin so much, the temptation, you don't even know what it is. But in the church, though, you'd be surprised how many Christians get discouraged about temptation as if it's a sign of maturity. But Jesus was tempted. Paul said he was. Peter was. There's a lack of confidence. And lastly, what we talked about last week, another obligation to the flesh is just a slow dying to the desire of it when we willfully give in to sin. We put to death the deeds of the body, by the spirit we'll live. But if we sow to them, we'll die. This is a subtle dying to the desires of the flesh. And when that happens, we kind of settle for who we are just without the flesh. It starts by being discouraged by the presence of temptation. We lose confidence in the real power. But if you're a genuine Christian, you're still going to fight. So if I'm not going to use the real power, the word, fasting, prayer, community of the church, then I'm going to use willpower, which is what I'm guilty of. One of the just distracting myself. So I may be struggling with something, and I'm, instead of just being like, Lord, please, or reading or doing this, I'll just be like, man, let me watch something on Netflix. Let me play something on PlayStation. Let me distract myself. You fill in the blank for whatever you do. But we got to have confidence. And then you know what happens is if we're not fighting by the spirit, then we're fighting by the same flesh that allows us to give in to the flesh. So we end up being obligated to the flesh all over again because we're trying to distract ourselves by the same flesh that allows us to sin in the flesh. And that proves we're still obligated to the flesh. First, we were obligated to give in to sin. Now we're obligated by trying to use strategies of the flesh to fight sin. And then many of us just get discouraged because the flesh cannot defeat the flesh. And we find ourselves like, man, or in some extreme cases, this doesn't work. And we walk away from the faith. Well, our passage this morning gives us another reality. It helps us see another reason why. Being obligated to the flesh is dangerous and why it's easy, but it also provides us with the reality. We talked last week, the main mantra last week was identity informs obedience, right? Who we are informs what we do. It's always been the pattern in the Bible. God saves Israel from Egypt. Now here's the law. God saves us from our own Egypts. This is how you obey now. This is how you live. That's the pattern. So that was the mantra last week. Identity informs obedience. And we get an understanding of that as we look closer in verse 15. For it says this, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So here's the eternal battle. The spirit of slavery Versus the spirit of adoption. 
Here's the battle. Spirit of slavery versus the spirit of adoption. But we also, in this verse, get a further understanding of why it's easy to be obligated to the flesh. In other words, by, I'm using the language of Paul to say why it's easy to just continue to give in to temptation over and over again. He lays it out right here at the beginning of this verse. He says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. To fall back into fear. To fall back. What he's saying is, you already came from that. Anything that you go back to, you're familiar with. What's familiar? I remember during the presidential campaign, the last one, one, one prominent uh, evangelical personal friend of mine, he was writing a post about who he was going to vote for. And when it was clear that it was between Donald Trump or, or Hillary Clinton, he penned an article saying, these are his words, that he, won, that he was advocating voting for Hillary Clinton because it was the evil that he knew about. He was like, we already know how she is and what she's going to do. I would rather vote for, for the evil that I do know instead of the evil that I don't know. Which was, he was saying, we don't know what Trump is going to do. We just know his character, and I can't get behind it. There was something about the familiarity of the evil that for this brother led him to post an article that a lot of people follow him, and he got a lot of pushback. It was more political. But he said, listen, the evil that I'm familiar with, I'd rather give in to that. It's the same way for us. The evil that we're comfortable with, we're familiar with, is easier to fall back into. It's easier to be obligated and fall back into this reality. And that's the pattern. Obligated to the flesh leads to slavery. Slavery leads to fear. This is what he's laying out. Because you do not receive a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery. The eternal reality is that God didn't save us and then give us his spirit so that we could fall back into the habits and patterns that we have and then the fear of them. We talk about this often. We said it last week. We fall back into slavery and then we're afraid, we fear. God's angry at us. I don't want to read. I don't want to pray. I don't want to go to D group. I don't want to do anything. I want to distance myself from God. And that's just we're just doing the flesh. We move and move and move, and for some people, they keep moving. The fear, 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out what? Fear. In other words, when you've experienced the love of God, it casts out the fear of punishment. But when you give in to sin and are obligated to the flesh, you go back to that same fear, and it affects your relationship. There's a big difference between being afraid of being hurt by someone and confident that they love you. Huge difference. Huge difference. You ever had a relationship with someone where you could just tell they're not in a bad, they're in a bad mood? And you just, what? What, you, what do you want to do when you notice that? I don't want to be around them. Walking on eggshells. I'm too heavy to walk on eggshells. They just crack when I walk around. Sorry. You just don't want to do it. 
You don't want to be around people that you feel like, oh, man, they might. So do you honestly think you want to serve a God who can't, who's just angry at you? You think it's easier to serve? It's hard to have a relationship with God because we don't see him. So now you're going to feel confident to serve a God that you think is angry at you. This is why he's he's giving us this verse and, and, and using this reality, saying, listen, God didn't give you his spirit so that you can fall back into being afraid of him. He gave you his spirit to make you a part of his family. He gave you his spirit so that you could not only put to death the temptations that we experience, but also to have a relationship with him. The statement is supposed to give us both discernment into how we can be, but also confidence into where we're headed and to who we are. And remember, this is God's word. For whatever reason, God the Father wanted everyone to know this truth. And he had Paul write it right here. And however the spirit worked, Paul translated it, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption of whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, adoption is a term that you may be familiar with. You may be familiar with it just the way it works in culture. You may be familiar with it doctrinally, what the Bible says about adoption. It's a term that many of us are familiar with. It's a term that defines our identity in God. But there's some stuff we don't know about adoption that makes it fantastic that God put this actual term in the Bible. This term is only used five times in the New Testament. Paul uses it three times in Romans. Now, here's the thing about the term adoption. If you are into the Greek and you have a Septuagint, which is a Greek Old Testament, you will not find this term adoption in the Old Testament. Because Jews didn't have adoption as a fundamental part of who they were as a people. That is not a Jewish idea, adoption. It's not a Jewish idea at all. The idea of adoption is actually a Roman and Greek reality. This was a big deal in Roman and Greek law, this idea of adoption. It doesn't occur. Jews didn't practice adoption. Romans and Greeks did. Now, this is what makes it interesting. Now, here's what it means. It means that a person is granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not belong by nature. That's what adoption means. You are granted the full rights of sonship into a family that you do not belong to by nature. This isn't a Jewish concept. This is a Roman and Greek concept. 
And this is amazing. When we started the book of Romans, back in Romans 1, I said one of the reasons why Romans is such an amazing book is not just because of the density of, the denseness of the theology. It was because the Romans were the ones who killed Jesus. They were the ones who literally were the ones who put the nails in him and who hung him on the cross. They were the ones who ripped his back open 39 times. They were the ones that put a crown of thorns on his head and made him carry a 100-pound beam up a hill called Golgotha. They were the ones that grabbed Simon of Siren and helped him carry it because he couldn't. They were the ones that cast Lot for his clothes. The Romans. And yet, the Lord is so gracious that he allows not only a church to be established in the city where they killed his son, but he sends the most theological letter in all the New Testament to that particular church. That's amazing. Well, he does something else amazing here. God takes a secular social construct that he gave to the Romans and the Greeks that the Jews are unfamiliar with called adoption and then takes that and makes it a significant fundamental reality for the church believers in Jesus. So people who, the the Jews didn't have adoption, the church, he takes this concept from non-believers, takes it and makes it a fundamental reality for believers just showing his sovereignty over all things. And he signifies that by calling it the spirit of adoption. So he makes that a fun, that's a fundamental, eternal, in my Bible, it's a capital S. Normally when it's a capital S, that means the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's job is to bring about the adoption of those who believe in Jesus Christ. He takes this secular social construct from the Romans and Greeks and makes it an eternal application for those who are believers in him. This is an amazing reality. The father commandeers the term adoption. Now, it's always been his. He let the, the Gentiles borrow it. And then now he brings it back. And so for them, for this group of people, for this church, they would have understood what adoption meant because they're in Rome. They know the power of adoption in Rome. They know what it meant. So when he uses this term adoption for them, they have an understanding immediately that we have been given the full rights of sonship to God, even though it's not our natural family. They would have gotten this concept immediately. Immediately. This is a reality, a significant reality. And it's a good illustration for the identity of a believer. You're not just a Christian loosely connected to the people that you sit around, hoping for a somewhat aloof eternal destination with a God who knows all things, but is not really aware of you. That's one way to see it, which is inaccurate, to a God who wants his people to know he desires an intimate relationship 
with them. And not just, okay, I'm bringing you to heaven, or I'm forgiving your sin, but I am making you a part of my family. I'm making you a part of the family. There is no such thing as non-family members in heaven to God. There's no, there's none of it. This reality that God is laying out here is to encourage believers. This encourages us because our identity changes. Remember, who you believe you are, who you think you are, will determine what you do. It will determine what you do. And that's just the reality. The verse continues with another greater reality. It says this, that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Only used three times in the New Testament, in the whole Bible. Once Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 14, where he's crying out, take this cup from me. First time it was used. Second time, right here. Third time, Galatians 4. Only three times is Paul using this language. Abba, Father. So you got the adoption only used five times. This only used three times. Once by Jesus, clearly. And it's easy for everyone to say, well, of course, Jesus has that kind of relationship. But he's saying something significant here. He doesn't just say father. He puts the Abba, the Aramaic term in front of it, the Abba. Now, many of us, you may or may not know this, but the Aramaic understanding of the, the Aramaic you know, term, and then you have the father. The Aramaic side of it makes it a little bit more intimate. It's like calling him daddy. That's what it means. It's like to call God daddy. And that might be complicated for some of us to imagine that. One of the biggest challenges for me coming into the Christian faith was the idea of God as a father. I didn't grow up with a dad. My dad was the streets and a bunch of other older dudes who I used to listen to. I didn't have that. So when I became a Christian, this idea of God being a father took a lot longer for me than some other people to resonate with. I just couldn't, I understood it, and I would pray it, Father, and I would believe, I, I, but I just couldn't process that. Couldn't process him being a father. And there may be others in this room that may have tough relationships with their fathers or didn't have them either, and it's a challenge for you. So this idea of God wanting an intimate relationship by giving us an intimate designation may be a challenge. But this is what he wants us to know. That it's not just, hey, I want you to stop doing the stuff that was fun to you. You know what I'm saying? I'm a, I'm a buzzkill. Back in the day when we used to get high and dudes would do something dumb and mess, we'd be like, man, stop, man, you're a buzzkill, man. Stop killing my buzz. It's not what this is. God is saying, listen, 
I want you to see the intimate relationship that I have with you is the same intimate relationship that I have with Jesus. So you're allowed to use the same designation that Jesus uses when you believe in Jesus. That's crazy. You know what makes that amazing? Is that my kids, my kids are sick. One of my kids is sick today, so they're not here. But my kids, my kids are half Latina. And so they call me Poppy. And that just means dad or whatever. But when they say it, it means something more to them. My kids will never call any other person in this room Poppy. Never. Unless something happened and you adopted them. But then they probably call you Steve or Dan or whatever your name is. <laughs> Poppy is mine. You ain't changed their diapers. You can't call them Poppy. I remember them days. Where you put them little, the salt, smelling salts in your nose and so you can wipe them. They're only going to call me that. No one else is allowed to call them that. No one else, they're not going to, because they understand that's my dad. At the church every Sunday, I'll be sitting here talking to people, and at some point, they're all going to come up. They don't care if you're crying or whatever. <laughs> they're going to come up. Von Von's going to come up and just come give me a hug, ask me if I have any gum, which he knows I do. Because when you talk a lot, your breath stinks, and so I just try to pop a piece in. He knows that. Mateo's going to come up and show me what he drew. And Santiago's going to be back there playing on something, and he'll just look up and be like, hey, Dad. They're going to interrupt you because they're like, that's my dad. I can talk to my dad right now. Sorry, I know you're talking to him real quick. I got to show him some. Poppy, look at what I drew. Like, oh, that's good, son. Let me look at it later, man. They bleeding and crying, son. Let me look at it. <laughs> they don't care because there's an intimate relationship that they have with me. And what God is saying is, I don't care because I have an intimate relationship with the people who believe in Jesus. It's we that struggle with believing that. It's we that, that think that the weapons and, the, and God is angry and there's fear and that we're falling back into this and that's not his perspective. So he puts this in his word so that we know, listen, I know who you are. I know what you do. I know what you've done. I know how you think. I know how you feel. I know what circumstances you're going to. I know what prayers you think I have an answer. I know all these things that have happened and yet I'm telling you, I'm your dad. I'm your dad. I don't give my kids everything they ask, but I'm still their dad. We're not going to get everything we ask, but he's still our dad. Well, it continues on. Continues on. In verse 16, he says, the spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Right? Again, this is like language we don't talk in. Unless you come from a church where they be like, testify. You know, some of y'all probably seeing Kanye wear testify, come up in the spot, look at extra fly. We ain't talking about that, right? <laughs> That's all we talk about. The spirit testifies. So we just, it's just like, what does that mean? Because so many people wonder, are they really believers or not? How does the spirit work? And then what does that mean? It's so casual. How do we make this? How do we, how do we connect with this? The challenge is, it's the Spirit's work sometimes is so casual that we just don't think it. We tend to think, man, it should be like, 
You know, like, 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 rise of the Skywalker. <laughs> you get tempted. Go away from me. <laughs> you know, it's just like that's how we want. That's what we want, right? We just want that sense, that surge of power. Maybe there are times where maybe the Lord has met us in those ways that we think it should always be like that. But it's so casual that it doesn't seem like, how do I know the Spirit's testifying with my spirit? Because I don't, I don't, I don't feel that. I don't wake up and feel like extra fly, come up in the spot. I don't feel like that. I feel like, man, I got to get up. I'm tired. I don't feel like going to work. I got this meeting I got to go to. I don't feel like doing that. There ain't no fruit of the spirit. I don't wake up like in the spirit. So, some of us had dreams and we're like, man, why did I dream that? Oh, it's a couple of us, right? He said just last night. Come on up and tell us about it, bro. Testify. No, I'm just playing. We don't let anybody from the studio audience come up doing the performance. It's so casual. So how should we process this? Let me take you to a scene that I think will help us understand this. In, in, in Matthew 16. Here's the scene. All right. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Genuine question. And they say, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say, others Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets? So that's the answer they give. Casual question, casual answer. And Jesus says, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Right? Here's Peter. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Casual answer. No big deal. Now, from this scene, we get no indication that Peter was seized by the Spirit and says this, right? Well, listen to what Jesus says to Peter after he says this. Casual answer. He says, Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. So Jesus, as far as we know, doesn't lie. So here's what Jesus is saying. You can't even say that I am the Messiah unless the father does a work in you that allows you to say that. Now, for Peter, again, I imagine he just answers the question. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. But Jesus didn't see his answer as a casual answer that Peter could just say. He said, the Father revealed this to you. That answer is a supernatural answer. The Father revealed this to you. So what is he saying to us? This is, this is the reality. It is a supernatural work of the Spirit for people to call him Father. It's a, I know a lot of people that think they're Christians. They might even say, shoot, my God is. But they don't say my Father, though. They might talk about my God is a big God. I don't know who it is. Buddha was big, too. But when you talk about my father, it's a supernatural work of the spirit to call God father. It's a supernatural work of the spirit to have our desires change. It's a supernatural work. Supernatural work. Why is it supernatural? Because many of us, if we're honest, are more aware of our failings and our faithfulness. And the fact that you still pray, Father, 
knowing how often you failed the Father is a supernatural work. It's not casual. You wouldn't say it if the spirit wasn't in you testifying that you still belong to him, even though you fail. It's a supernatural work, but we don't think it's supernatural because we casually say it. But just like Peter said, you're the Messiah. The, the father revealed that to you. The spirit is the one that makes us still say, I still worship you, God. I still trust you, God, even though I'm suffering, God. I still believe in you, God, even though it doesn't seem like you answer my prayer. I still trust you. That's a supernatural work of the spirit. And in that, it testifies with our spirit that we do still believe in him. Even though we fail him and fall, we still trust him. Even though it seems like he failed us, which he didn't, we still trust him. That's a supernatural work of the spirit. And that's how the spirit testifies to our spirit, because we still have confidence to believe in him. It's not casual. It just seems casual. It's a supernatural work to have the Spirit give us the confidence to call God, the creator of everything, our Father. It's a supernatural work. The challenge is believing that. The Spirit changes our desires to live out, to live in light of what pleases God, and we start to embody that reality over and over. I remember in The Matrix, anybody see The Matrix Part 1? One of my favorite scenes in this movie, The Matrix Part 1, is they were, they were running. They were running. It was the first time you see the agents show up, right? So I'm not, if you ain't seen the movie, Google it. So, so listen. So the agents are the ones who can kill them in the matrix. So they, they come up and they catch them. And, they, and, and they're starting to run. They're running. And, and to get away, they got to go through these telephones. And then they get sucked back into the future. And if you ain't seen this, you're like, why are you talking about this? <laughs> Believe me. I'm going somewhere. But I'm going through this, I promise. So, so they, they're in there. And then Neo, who's like the star, he's the chosen one. He's the last one. And again, the agents... The agents are, they kill you. And Neo is sort of a new trainee. And so instead of, he's holding the phone and he sees Agent Smith coming and he hangs the phone up. And all the other people got through and then they're like, Trinity, the girl, she says to Morpheus, like, what is he doing? And Morpheus says, he's starting to believe. He's starting to believe. And all of a sudden, Neo just like, (laughs) and then they get it in, they get into it. He was like, I'm fighting. He was starting to believe that he's the chosen one. He's fighting. Church, you have to believe. You have to believe. And that's why we fight. Because our identity informs our obedience. We believe. So we fight. We fight. Neil got hit hard in that battle. But he fought. We get hit hard. But we fight. Because we're starting to Believe. And these verses are here to help us believe. Even if you thought the illustration was corny, the truth out of it is not. Do you believe? Dismiss the illustration. Do you answer the question? 
Do you believe? Do you believe that it's a supernatural work that God is doing in you? That the fact that you call him father is evidence that the spirit is testifying to your spirit. Do you believe? Do you believe that? God wanted us to see this reality because he knows that being obligated to the flesh could set us back in slavery and have us give in to fear. And once we give in to fear of God, we don't feel like we love God. Oh, God loves us. Perfect love casts out fear. So the opposite is true, too. Fear casts out love. Lastly, the last verse in this, in this particular passage, to continue on with God wanting to encourage us this morning, encourage us in his word. Verse 17, as he's laying out this thing, that the we, 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 we cry out, Abba, Father, and that the spirit testifies with our spirits. I mean, it just simply means that he gives us desires to obey him and our ability to keep going and our confidence to pray and do these things and fight, even though we fail and call him Father, is the way that it's testifying with our spirit. And he concludes at least this particular uh, verse. He says this, and so it says we're, 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 we're sons of God, we're children of God, the end of 16. And he says this, and if children... Also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So here is the inevitable reward for those who are living in light of the kingdom right now by faith. This is the inevitable reward here. And there's a term here used that is not used anywhere else. And this is a, this is a sort of a Trinitarian reality that God's laying out in this passage. Because we often make, and rightly so, we make a lot of our connection to Jesus. And sometimes we forget the connection we have to the Father. We think about it just from the standpoint of we're connected to Jesus. But this, is a trinit- this whole passage is Trinitarian. Because it says this firm, it says if we're children, we're also heirs, heirs of God. It's the only time this phrase is used in the Bible. An incredible translation. Heirs of God. This is the strongest of identity. Because this is saying we're connected to God the Father. Not just Jesus, but God the Father. We're heirs of him. the strongest of identity language, and it's showing that our whole relationship is Trinitarian because we obey by the Spirit, we are sons of the Father, and we inherit, we're co-heirs with Christ, which means that we inherit some of the glory that is exclusively his. This is Trinitarian language. Heirs of God is a phrase not to be trifled with. God is saying, listen, you are connected to me. Yes, it's because of Jesus. But God says, you are connected to me. You are co-heirs with Christ, 
which means I'm going to allow you to share in some of the spoils, the glory that belongs to him exclusively. You're going to participate and inherit some of that, which is primarily to be in the presence of God forever. And when I say God, I'm speaking the the Trinity, the Godhead. This is a significant reality, but it comes with a stipulation. Comes with a stipulation. If indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. That's the stipulation. If, if, it's a big if, if we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So suffering, glory. Suffer with Christ? Well, he's already gone. He's in heaven. How do you suffer with Christ? Again, it's just language that we don't necessarily use. Or if we use it this way, we think, well, I'm suffering with him. I'm going through the exact same thing. This means we suffer because we belong to Christ. This is a fallen world, right? Everyone suffers. Everyone. We can, you can click on the news app. Click on BBC News or, or Al Jazeera News, and you'll find out about parts of the world where crazy stuff is happening. Or you'll hear an article about they, these people just got slaughtered in this, in, this, in this city in Africa. It's not even about being Christian or nothing. It's just, it just happened. Or you'll hear about some California fire. I was in California two years ago, or last year on my sabbatical, and there was a wildfire. And I'd never been to California when a fire, wildfire was happening. So I never, when I see it on TV, it's like, wow, that's crazy, you know? But it's not until you're like, you're actually around it and you realize the impact that it has in California and all the stuff that you can't do. There were areas we could not go because the road was blocked off. There was mountains, there were scenes that we couldn't see because the smoke had so covered the area was too thick. We couldn't go to Yosemite because they said the fire's too close and the smoke is too thick. And it was all done. We went to visit a friend in L.A. I stayed in San Francisco, which is a six-hour drive. In L.A., fires, smoke. And I was like, wow, this is that bad? And then over there, you see the news all the time. You see people walking through the neighborhoods that have been decimated by fire. And you just think, wow. And I was emotionally affected at some of it. Because I was like, wow, when I watch this stuff back home, it's just a brief clip. There's a forest fire. It, you, it focuses more on what they're trying to do to stop it. It doesn't show the people who actually are living through it. But the, when you're there, the news will show the people who are living through it. And like, wow, I can't go, oh, we can't go visit this site because it's blocked off. That whole city made, that whole town may be destroyed. It's like, dad. Everyone suffers. 
but everyone doesn't suffer because they believe in Jesus. Everyone suffers, but everyone doesn't suffer because they believe in the Lord. Everyone, and by suffering, it's twofold. It's going to be resisting the desires that we want, that we, that we get pleasure from because we want to honor the Lord. And it's also suffering externally by other people because we're Christians. That's what it means to suffer with him. Jesus was the Christ. He didn't have a lot. He had some external suffering, but most of it was attacks on who he was. Not the Messiah. Early in his ministry, they tried to walk him off a cliff. Listen, the Lord just kind of went through everybody. They didn't know what happened to him. I wish I would have seen that. Because all of a sudden, they walked him to the cliff thinking, yeah, we can really push him over. Hey, where did, where did he go? But he suffered reproach for being Christ. You're going to suffer reproach for being a Christian. Jesus suffered. We suffer because we belong to him. We suffer because we have to resist things that we know we desire, that we'll temporarily benefit from, but we know that they're sinful and that they don't honor the Lord. And it's, it's being obligated to the flesh, so we resist, and that is a form of suffering. But then we also suffer because other people don't like you because you profess to be a believer. And a believer that stands up for biblical values. There's a lot of people that profess to be a believer. I'm talking about when you stand up for biblical values, biblical truth, you will experience some suffering. That's the kind of suffering that makes us a child of God. Because to suffer with Jesus, you have to take up your cross. You have to. You have to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And you have to not be obligated to the flesh. And that's a supernatural work. It may seem like we're doing it on our own. No. That's a supernatural work. It may seem like you're praying on your own. No. That's a supernatural work. It may seem like you're just calling God Father because it's, it's rope and you just do it by memory. No, that's a supernatural work. It's a supernatural work. The Spirit is reminding you, you still belong to him. You can still pray to him. You can still come to him. He's not going nowhere. 2 Timothy 2.13 said that we are faithless. He remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Don't lose confidence or fight the loss of confidence. Fight the reality. It's a scheme of the devil. It's a good scheme. It's so amazing to me. It is fascinating to me how people who don't know the Lord swear they're going to heaven. And people who do are afraid to die because they don't know what's going to happen. It is amazing to me. The people with the most confidence or the ones who have the least chance of making it. And the people who have confidence in the living for the Lord are doubting what's going to happen. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, this is real. It's not casual. It's real. And God put it right here 
knowing that one day we would read this, we would hear this and be encouraged by this. So let it be so for us as believers.